Today's reading is Daniel 9, 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God and kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the inequities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because... We are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this final message today, I want to call attention to a potential hazard to seeking to live as a creative minority. We've been talking here at Grace about the creative minority, and that language comes from the British historian Arnold Toynbee. 
in which he raises a question in his book, A Study of History, of is it just inevitable that civilizations will decline? And he says that because civilizations have both a, a material and spiritual dimension, that it's not inevitable, that it's possible for a civilization to reverse course, to revive, and to be renewed. But he says that possibility belongs to what is called a creative minority. And the creative minority is a group of people who find themselves in a minority, but instead of retreating and engaging in self-protection and isolating or assimilating and just becoming like the culture, the creative minority remains distinct. They remain distinct And they have practices that come out of that distinctiveness. And it's in those practices that they offer a positive alternative to the culture, which ends up with the dominant culture adopting those practices. And that, in turn, turns the culture around. And so in his study of history, he studied occasions in which that has happened. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of England, picks that language up in his article on on creative minorities, in which he then says that the Jewish people have been a, a case study of a creative minority. Now, I brought that up to you, and I bring that up again because this is the last time you're going to hear about it from me. Um, but there are people who are new today, and there are people that have kind of bopped in and out during this, this time, and maybe that's, that's all new to you. So when I'm using the language of the creative minority, in this case, I'm talking about the people of God as as not being a dominant majority in our culture anymore, but rather being a minority. And the question is, will we be a creative minority? Now, here's the potential hazard. As I said, I want to call uh, your attention to a potential hazard in seeking to live as a creative minority. And here's the potential hazard in seeking to live with loyalty to God as a creative minority. You're practicing this distinct lifestyle as a creative minority. And you've heard me last week or the last two weeks talking about these non-negotiables. To be a creative minority that is distinct in the way that we're loyal to God means that we decide on things that we won't do and things that we won't stop doing. Historically, the church, the evangelical church has been known for what it won't do. Usually that's just aspirational. But we hardly ever articulate things that we won't stop doing. So let's say that that is part of your lifestyle. You're practicing this distinct lifestyle. And because the dominant culture does not share your commitment to these practices, it's easy to simply give in, to give up, to just go with the flow, or to condemn the dominant majority. To literally say to the dominant majority, to hell with you. And in the second response, it's easy to see yourself over time as the only one or the only church or the only tribe of friends who really gets it, who's really dialed in, who really knows what it means to follow God. And that's been the temptation for God's people throughout the church history. And so it's easy to become bitter, it's easy to become angry, to become resentful, to adopt an us and them mindset, and and to begin to have a victim mindset, a victim mentality. And so as we come to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 that Chris just read to us, we get a glimpse into the mindset of a man who's been loyal to God for decades, who has been part of a minority in a culture that is so unlike anything that any of us could ever imagine. And in this prayer, we discover what keeps Daniel from having 
a victim mindset as he seeks to be loyal to God. So I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 9, if you would please. Have, at least have the text open. There's a blue Bible underneath you, or open up an app. Uh, the text that's underneath your seat is page 746. But at least have something in front of you. Um, it, it also helps you to just not wander off and to think about a variety of things that any one of us could think about during the next uh, 25 minutes. In Daniel 9, as you open it up, it's one of the most beautiful and striking prayers of confession in the Bible. But it raises the question, why is it here? Why is it here? Why is this prayer of confession here? More specifically, what has Daniel done that needs to be confessed? If you've been with us in this series, Daniel gives no evidence of anything that he needs to confess. He's one of the few good guys in the Bible. Think about it. Most of the people that you find in the Bible are highly inconsistent or they're morally compromised. That's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible has integrity because it does not gloss over people. It doesn't give them this kind of superficial moral shine. It shows you the characters in all their 3D blemishes and faults and doesn't hide that from us. But Daniel is not one of those people. We've not seen anything thus far in this that would give us reason to believe that he would need to confess something. So why this confession? Well, look at J- Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Look at the text. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So that gives us a, a, a time. It situates us, situates us in the first year of Darius. And that takes us back to the end of chapter 5, in which the Persians have conquered the empire of Babylon. And that happened in 539, which means that Daniel has been in Babylon for about 50 years now, because Jerusalem was conquered in about 587. So Daniel is in his late 60s. He He is deported to Babylon when he's in his teens, and now he's in his late 60s. Okay? Keep that in mind. A man in his late 60s. And one thing that's not been addressed thus far is why Daniel and his friends have been stuck in Babylon for 50 years. And there's a story. And the storyline goes like this. That God stepped in prior to this to redeem a nation of slaves out of Egypt. And he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. And there he establishes a covenant with them. And when you hear the word covenant, think relationship, like a marriage covenant. And there are stipulations to that covenant. Here's how we're going to have this relationship. And he gives, he gives these people ten commands. And then he later follows with about 600 more. <laughs> and, and the reason for these commands is not because he's m- making some kind of power move, but because he desires to articulate down to the details of life what it means to live in covenant relationship for the sake of the nations. See, he calls these people to himself to be a nation of priests. He wants this nation to show the surrounding nations what it looks like to be loyal to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, and to show the surrounding nations the character of God. So as they live this distinctive lifestyle in loyalty to God, they will show the surrounding nations what it looks like, what the character of God is like. Well, Israel says yes to these stipulations, yes to the covenant, 
goes into the promised land, and the next 400 years is an utter disaster. They're disloyal to the terms of the covenant. God puts up with it for 400 years. Think about 400 years. Try to find something that you can identify with that's lasted 400 years, not this country. 400 years. Is God patient? Yes, he's patient. Before he finally orchestrates their, def- their defeat and their captivity due to their rebellion. And that's why when we open up Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, we run into the words where it says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Did you hear that? The Lord delivered the king of Judah. 400 years, finally there was an end. And that's how they ended up in Babylon. So Daniel and his friends are stuck in Babylon for 50 years because of the prolonged failure of someone else. It's because of the moral compromise of his parents, of his grandparents, of his great-grandparents who gave in to the culture, who chased after the idols of the surrounding nations, who basically abandoned faithfulness to the God who had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt? Now, how would you feel about life if you were Daniel? And take a minute and put yourself into his shoes. Fifty years in a culture that is not your home culture, you're a minority, and every day is a struggle to remain faithful to God. Now, let's imagine that this is a movie script and you get to continue the story arc, okay? What would you do? How would you write this storyline if you're continuing this from this point? Here's Daniel, 50 years on in this. How would you write this? How would you write Daniel's story? I mean, think about how easy it would be to feel bitter, to feel sorry for yourself, to feel resentful, to have a victim mentality. I've been stuck here for 50 years because my ancestors were so screwed up. I could have been doing something really beneficial with my life these last 50 years. This has been my peak productive years. This really sucks. He would say that in Aramaic, of course. (laughs) So it prompts Daniel to wonder how long this is going to last. How much longer is this going to last? So he opens up the Jeremiah scroll that was brought to Babylon, and in verses 1 and 2, he discovers the answer in Jeremiah. He says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And that's based upon Jeremiah 25, verses 7 to 11. So he's in his 60s and he's thinking to himself, whoa, I may get back to Jerusalem. I've been here 50 years, Jeremiah says 70 years, add 10, 20 years to my life, I may make it back to Jerusalem. Now, I may, be on, you know, I may be using a cane or someone may be pushing me in a wheelchair, but I may make it back. And so he has this glimmer of hope that this is not going to last forever. 
And this motivates him to do something, and we see that in verses 3 and 4. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So Daniel prays and he confesses. Now, as I was studying this, I was thinking to myself, what might I have done if I'd spent the majority of my life stuck in a situation like Daniel's? I mean, I probably would have been thinking, man, my family was so dysfunctional. What lame losers. And I probably, it would have been easy for me to have kind of a pity party or the victim mentality, but Daniel does something surprising. He confesses. Now, even to, to use that word, I mean, where do you see that practiced anymore in our culture? At best, we apologize or we say we're sorry, which can be interpreted to mean, I'm sorry for the inconvenience this has been to both of us. But there's hardly ever true confession in the sense that someone takes ownership for what they've done where they say, I did this. I see how it hurt you. I see how it affected our relationship. I was wrong. That's confession. And so Daniel enters into confession here. And what is Daniel confessing? Two things. And this is what I want to spend the remaining minutes over. The first thing he confesses, he confesses to God something about God. So he confesses to God something about God's character. And that in turn causes Daniel to confess something about God's people, which then reveals why it is that he does not carry a victim mentality. So what does he confess, first of all, about God's character? Well, three times he says in this in this prayer, he confesses that God is righteous. Look at verse 7. That's the first place. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. And then verse 14, it says, The Lord our God is righteous. And then verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. So three times, he confesses to God that God is righteous. Now, what does that mean? We don't use righteous in our culture very much, do we? I I looked it up on Urban Dictionary. Uh, Here's containing the best possible attributable qualities. Oh man, that lasagna was righteous. (laughs) I thought that's pretty good. Except for the fact that do we compare God to lasagna? You know what I mean? Is there an equivalence there? I I hope not. but that, we don't, we just, it's so hard to find it apart from it being used in a slang kind of way in our culture. We just don't use the word righteous. Well, here's the Hebrew word. It's tzaddik. And it describes someone's character, but it's seen only in the way that a person treats someone else in their relationships. Okay? So it's a relationship word. Meaning that you can be a good person by yourself, but you can't be a righteous person by yourself. To be a righteous person has to be evidenced in the way that you treat other people. And so righteousness is a standard of being in right relationships. Righteousness is a standard of being in right relationships. Look at verse 7 with me, 7 to 10. I just want to read this to you to show you this. He says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. 
To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So Daniel says that God displayed Sedek, Sadiq, toward Israel. He's saying, you've done right toward us, even though we've been disloyal for 400 years. Daniel also goes on to say in in verses 11 to 14 that God has done right in judging Israel. And that's why Daniel can say that God was righteous in destroying Jerusalem, which we heard read to us. It wouldn't be good for God as judge to ignore justice or accountability. And even though the event upended his own life and those of others, he says that Israel had it coming to her for her disloyalty. So it was right for God to do what he did. And this is why he doesn't have a pity party. This is why he doesn't have a victim mindset, because he sees the character of God, and he sees that what has transpired, even to the fact that it brought him to Babylon for 50 years, it was right for God to do it. He goes on in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. He then appeals to God's righteousness as grounds for seeking forgiveness. In other words, he's saying, because you're righteous, forgive us. So he's saying that God's righteousness compels him both to judge evil and to forgive and to restore. Now, if, you're, if you just kind of just dozed out for a second, if the primary lens through which you see the God of the Bible, now listen to me here, if the primary lens through which you see the God of the Bible is that he's a distant deity who just throws out laws, rules, demands compliance, and then waits for us to not comply so that he can then come crashing down on us and torch us. You really need to read the Bible because that's not the God who's revealed in the Bible. You really need to know what God is like, and that comes from seeing what, how he's revealed in pages of God's Word. That's not what he is like. Yes, there are consequences to human evil and rebellion, but God also acts based upon his promises. What I mean by that is if you go back to, you go back to the very beginning, to Genesis 12, where God makes his promise to Abraham, a promise to bless, a promise to bring restoration to the world, to forgive, to restore the world that he's created. So God is righteous to judge evil, but God is also righteous to keep his promise to forgive and to restore and to bless. Both of those are in play. Think about it this way. I have two sons. They're grown up now, but when they were younger, imagine this scenario. One of my sons hits his brother. I know that never happens in your house, but occasionally it did in our house. Now, would I be righteous as a parent if I ignored that? Based upon all that I just talked about in terms of what righteousness looks like 
and how it's manifested in terms of God's character, would I be righteous as a parent to ignore that? No. Because to be righteous is to do right in regards to the person who, in, with whom you're relationship. So I wouldn't be doing right by them because basically what I would be doing is signaling to them that it's okay to live this way, that there are no consequences, and I would be signaling to them that this is the way that life works. And that you can go out in life, you can go to jobs, you can go to whatever you're doing in life, and you can function that way without consequences. That would not be righteous because I would not be doing right by them as a parent. And so parents help children by creating a culture where they can experience consequences for destructive behavior. That's righteousness. See, it names the destructive behavior. It names the destructive ways of being human, and it ensures consequences. However, if my only role is justice, then I'm not being righteous either. Because I need to show a way forward as well a way forward to heal the relationship. I need to teach my sons how to confess and how to forgive and how to move toward the other person in love even though you really don't want to in order to restore the relationship. And it's this rich view of God, of God and his righteousness that grabs Daniel's imagination and shapes his response. He, is, he understands that God is both Righteous in his justice and his mercy. And both are based on his promise. Genesis 12, Deuteronomy 28, 1 Kings 8, 33, 34, 46 to 51. God has promised to be this way. And so when Daniel sees the beauty and the perfection and the glory of God's character, he's humbled. And so throughout this prayer, he uses we language. He includes himself in the people of God. He doesn't stand off and say, you guys are the losers, and I'm here because you're such a loser. But he includes himself in the people of God. He sees himself as part of the people of God. He doesn't stand off and exclude himself, but instead includes himself in this confession and he does not have a victim mindset. And so from it's that place that he then steps in to the remedy that Jeremiah had given, which was to confess, to turn back to God, and God would hear that prayer. So here's the bottom line for me as we finish this series, at least I finish this series today. I think that if we are going to seize the opportunity to be a creative minority, and I do really believe that there's a window of opportunity that's going to open, that's opening, and like a window of opportunity, it closes most of the time. The Spirit of God gives you an opportunity to jump through the window, and if you don't, the window closes. And I think there's an opportunity for the people of God, for the church of Jesus Christ, to be a creative minority, to quit just trying to be the biggest church in town, the most successful church, to ape the culture in all the trappings that the culture says, this is the mark of success. And instead, to be a people who are united together with distinct practices, non-negotiables, out of a desire to show the world an alternative way of being human that comes out of a loyalty to God. But there 
is going to be a price to pay for this. And the price is that it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and at times it's going to feel lonely. Because I'm telling you right now, there's not a whole lot of people that are going to sign up for this. Because most of us don't have time, we're too distracted, we've got too many other things we're doing. And so those who do choose to go this route, and you can, you know, 10 years from now, you can tell me if I'm right, all right? If I'm still alive. 10 years from now. The hazard is that it will be easy to give up. To begin to have a victim mindset because you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel like you're the only one that is doing it. And so to be a creative minority means that this one piece has to come in play again and again and again that we are saying to each other, we're affirming together that we are not victims. That we are not going to function with a victim mindset because God is righteous. Because we know the character of God and we're trusting in him. I want to end with a quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs whom I cited throughout. I love him. He says, it's comfortable being a victim. But the problem with it is by defining yourself as a victim, you've placed yourself out of any possible way of improving your situation. Because if it isn't your fault, there's no possible way to make it right. Someone else has to. You thereby hand over your life to someone else. He says, the Jewish way is this. If I see something wrong with the world, let me be one of the first to put it right. That is responsibility. That is literally what responsibility means. God is, calling us to, uh, God is calling to us as he called to the first human beings in the garden, where are you? Help me put out the fire. Rather than victims, the alternative is to see ourselves as responsible agents who, working together with one another, led by God, can change the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would take your word and the things that you believe are consistent with your character and with your desire to speak to us, that those things would grip our hearts. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, for the family of God who is here and for the family of God throughout this city. And I ask that we together might have a larger story than just the story of our own individual lives. And that that story would grab our imaginations, it would grab our hearts, and it would grab our practices. And that we together might see a different way of being human and offer that to our culture. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up out of this congregation people who would be committed to that, to identifying those practices and living out of those practices for the, for the benefit of the culture. And rather than condemning the culture, condemning those who are in public office, condemning structures of authority around us, that we would be people who offer a positive alternative. And I pray that there would be a day in the next five to ten years in which the culture would turn around and give thanks that the church has been present in the culture. And perhaps they would turn around and look at the church and be thankful that for the church turning around the culture, saving the culture, 
giving the culture a different way of being human. I pray that you would give us the ability to aspire to those types of imaginations, to believe that because of who you are throughout history and because you are that same God, that in linking our story to you and your character, that these things are possible. So, Father, as a result of this time together, I pray that we would not just leave this, but rather this would inflame our hearts and our conversations in the days and weeks and year to come. And I ask this, that Jesus might be glorified. Amen.